You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. All right, well, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And uh, today, we're, we're coming to the very close of a series that we've been in for several months. We actually kicked this off right after Easter weekend, so back in April, and it's been all through the spring and summer. We have been together as a community, as a church across all campuses, looking at, kind of digging deep into Jesus' most famous teaching. It's a sermon that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout this sermon, which stretches over Matthew 5 to 7, if you've been here or if you've read it before, I think you'd probably agree with me that, that through this, this sermon, Jesus, he shares some pretty profound ideas. Jesus also shares some pretty provocative ideas, especially in the day and age that we find ourselves today. Um, but, but here's the reality. No sermon or, or speech or piece of written literature has had a greater effect on human history over the last 2,000 years, but even then specifically in the last few hundred years in the West, than this sermon from Jesus. And today we come to his conclusion, his, his final 130 words. So would you stand with me for the reading of scripture? Matthew chapter 7, we'll start reading in verse 24. This is Jesus' conclusion. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he had taught as one who had authority and not as a teacher of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, we have access to more information today than than any other time in history. There has never been a time in history where human beings have had more information available to them than this age that we're living in, this era that we're in today. Actually, many sociologists refer to the era, the age that we're living in as the information age. And they place the start of the information age in the mid to late 1970s, but in the last decade, decade and a half, it has dramatically sped up with the, with the development of search engines and then voice-activated search engines, be it Google Home or Alexa, and more recently, ChatGBD. But um, here's the reality. If my four-year-old daughter, my daughter Kinsley, if she has a question about literally anything, she can just shout from the couch, hey, Google! Ask her question. Maybe it's like, what, what does a walrus sound like? <laughs> and in a matter of seconds, she can, she can get the answer to her question. John Mark Comer, who's a, a, a Christian author and Bible teacher, he did some really helpful work synthesizing the progress and development that's taken place over this last 2,000 years, specifically as it relates to the sharing of information and ideas. And so Comer points to, to something known as the knowledge doubling curve. Has anyone heard of that before? The knowledge doubling curve? See a few people. This is, is something that was, was developed or first introduced by a guy named, guy named Buckminster Fuller. And, and he was this ridiculously smart guy. He was an American architect, systems theorist, inventor, philosopher. Anyways, he calculated that from the, the day that Jesus was born, in the first century, from the first century AD, 
It took 1,500 years for what there was to know, the cumulative knowledge of humanity to double, okay? 1,500 years for that to happen. From that point, it took 250 years to double again. And then every 100 years after that, it doubled up until World War II. After World War II, for a variety of reasons, the cumulative knowledge of humanity doubled every 25 years up until the 90s, where it's believed to have doubled every 12 to 13 months. And then today... It is widely believed, and there's little variances on either side of this, but most people would say that, that the cumulative knowledge of humanity doubles every, does anyone want to guess? How often? Every 12 to 13 hours. So think about that. If you were born in the first century when Jesus was born, it took 1,500 years to double what there was to know. If you were born this morning at 6 a.m., then everything there is to know in the world will double by dinner. And here's the bottom line, or why I even bring that up. We have access to more information today than ever before in human history. But that's not all. Let me continue this train of thought for just a moment. There's another guy named Tom Friedman. He's a political commentator. He wrote a lot for the New York Times. And uh, he writes about this idea that he calls the age of acceleration. He says that due to technology and the access to information and the spread of ideas, they're moving faster than the human brain actually has the ability to adapt or keep up with that we literally can't evolve fast enough to keep up with the pace of change. And as a result, most people are living in a constant state of at least low-grade anxiety, feeling like we can never keep up with everything there is to know, everything that's going on in the world, from social trends to world events to, to global tragedies and social justice initiatives. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I can definitely relate. I think it's safe to say that most of us are overwhelmed by the quantity of information that there is to engage with. And then the third thought that I wanted to share off the top is this, this idea that came from another author named Neil Postman. He writes about something that he calls the information to action ratio. He argues that, that we hear so much information every single day of the year, both useless information and, and helpful and important information. But for the most part, we're unable to do very much with the information that we hear. For example, we hear things about things that are happening all around the world whether it's the fires in Maui or the war in Ukraine or disasters going on in Iran. And, and so what that tends to do when we hear about all these things but we actually can't really do too much about it is it moves us to have a very low information to action ratio. We, we get really used to, to hearing things, even important things, and then doing very little with it as the, as the expression goes, in one ear and out the other. Or as Neil Postman says, having a very low information to action ratio. But then when we come to these teachings of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, and especially in the conclusion, which we'll look at together today, Jesus is very clear that this in one ear out the other or this low information to action ratio will never do. Let's look at the text together. We'll walk through it a little bit more slowly. Let's, let's look at that first few words. Matthew chapter seven. Jesus starts his conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount saying, therefore. In other words, he's saying, in light of everything that I've said up until this point, and he's said a lot about what it looks like when the gospel gets a hold of a person, how it starts to change us and transform us. He's talked about wealth. He's talked about sexuality. He's talked about nonviolence and retaliation. He's talked about judging others. He's talked about anxiety. He's talked about prayer. And he's painted this, this beautiful picture of what it looks like for humanity to truly flourish. 
So Jesus says, in light of all of that that I've shared in, in the Sermon on the Mount thus far, everything that we've covered as a church over this series over the last few months, he says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine, and I want to pause there for a moment, because I think it's important to say that hearing the word, hearing the word of God is extremely important. Hearing the words of Jesus is actually where discipleship starts. And Jesus, as well as many other biblical authors, have a lot to say of the importance of us hearing truth. For example, you could look at Romans chapter 10, where Paul the Apostle, he says, how shall one believe in him who has not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Later on, Paul the Apostle, again, will go on to say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. See, hearing the gospel in its various forms, whether it be preached on Sunday morning or or, or classes on Tuesday night, or listening to the version app as you're on public transit, or reading scripture with your favorite cup of pour-over coffee in the morning, whatever it is, hopefully a combination of all of those things. Hearing the word of scripture is the starting place for following Jesus. Scripture is, is active and living, and when we hear it preached or we read it and, and, and we encounter these words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, it has this transformative power in our lives. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. But... Right here in our text, Jesus is about to say that hearing alone is not enough. He says, therefore, therefore anyone who hears these words of mine and what? And puts them into practice. According to Jesus, there's a living out component to following him. Hearing is is where it starts, but contrary to public thought, he actually does expect us to do something with what we've heard. Karl Barth, who's a Swiss theologian, he says it like this. He says, the goal of theology is not to get it known, but to get it lived. But the challenge is, and to throw back to where we started just a few moments ago, specifically in our day and age, we have access to so much teaching and so many different ideas and information, and there's no shortage of good ideas on the internet or wherever else you find information. And we're so conditioned to listen to information, be it articles or tweets or videos or 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 information of any kind, to hear really compelling stuff, even to be moved by what we hear, but then do nothing with it. One information, uh, sorry, our our information to action ratio is at an all-time low. And so this teaching from Jesus, it actually couldn't be any more relevant for the day and age that we find ourselves today. We have this low action, information to action ratio. And, and I see that play out in my own life. For, for example, I am very aware of the importance of diet and exercise, okay? I, I have some friends who are personal trainers. I have friends who are dietitians. I have watched videos online of the importance of working out and exercise. I've read articles. I, I've been to the gym for certain stretches of time in my life, and I've seen some real gains. And I've been on diets for periods of time where I've been on keto or whatever, healthy diet, whatever. And, and I've seen that, that changing your diet actually does work if you want to change and, and, and embody the kind of physique that you long to have. I'm pretty sure that at this point, I don't need any more knowledge about what I need to do if I want to become the kind of person I want to be. More knowledge isn't going to help me to lose the 30 pounds. <laughs> what I really need to do is get myself to the gym. It's stop eating after 7 p.m. All the stuff. Jesus says, it's not enough to hear my words. Wow, that's important. See, showing up on Sunday, that's the first step. Sitting under teaching and listening to the unpacking of, say, the Sermon on the Mount this summer. That's the starting place. That's good. 
We need that, but faith, because faith comes by hearing, but it's not enough just to hear and to resonate. It's not even enough to take really good notes. The difference between the wise person and the foolish person, as Jesus is gonna say, is what you do after you hear his teaching. What are you gonna do with it? And this is where Jesus transitions into a parable, which is essentially a word picture or a metaphor that he'll use to, to help us to understand what he's getting at here. If you grew up in church, you may have heard this parable taught on the flannel graphs. Any 90s Sunday school kids around? I see some of you. Uh, here's how the parable goes. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like, this is where the parable starts, is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house in the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I want to take a moment and, and compare and contrast these two builders, because while there is one primary difference between the two builders, there's actually a lot of similarities. Like for starters, both builders had intention to build a house. They both set out with the same desire to build something beautiful that they could live in and that they could enjoy. And similarly, they, they both had instructions on how to build the house. Jesus says that they, they heard these words of mine. Um, I don't know about you, but I really struggle um, to follow instructions. <laughs> Anyone um, like building IKEA furniture? Is there anyone? I know there's some weird people around. Yeah, see, there you are. I love Ikea furniture. Like, I, I love how inexpensive it is due to, compared to other uh, furniture companies. I love the way it looks, the modern aesthetic. All, I just hate building it, okay? Because there's all these different screws and bolts, and to me, so many of them look the same, but they're not the same. And if you use early on, if you use one that you're supposed to use later on, you build to a certain point, and you realize, oh, gosh, and so you gotta make a decision. Do you just keep going, or do you use a bit of glue, or what do you do? And, uh, and if you don't do it right, you, you reach a point in building your Ikea furniture where your, your shelf either falls over, of course, that's never happened to me, or, or when you start to use it and put clothes in it, it starts to fall apart very very quickly. Again, nothing that's ever happened to me. Um, but, but here's what I like to do when I'm building Ikea furniture or anything for that matter. I like to look at the picture and then I like to build it. Well, if that's what it looks like, okay, I can build it. The problem with that method is that it almost never works because there's all these things beneath that you can't see on the exterior that are so important if that dresser is going to stand up. Back to the parable. One builder follows the instructions. The other builder looks at the box and says, ah, I think I could do that. Thirdly, they both build a house. And there's nothing to suggest that on the exterior of the house there was really anything that was that noticeably different. We can imagine that they both probably had the same kind of windows. They may have had the same siding or brick. They, uh, on, the, on the outside, they might have had a deck on the back or whatever the case might be. They, they probably looked identical on the outside. Maybe those houses even sat side by side. We're not talking about some beautiful home in Burke Mountain and then another home somewhere like that is a shack in the woods. No, these are two homes. On the exterior, they look the same. Number four, both houses experienced a great storm. Both homes were subject to the same rain and wind and floodwaters. The tornado that hit the town swept past both homes. Okay, those are the things that are the same about the two builders. Here's the, here's the difference. Here's the only difference, but it's an important one. 
It's a critical difference. It was their foundation. What they built their house on. My friend Silas is, uh, works in construction. He's a super for a construction site, and right now they're building some condos in Langley. And uh, when I was with Silas in the spring, we got talking about work, what I'm doing and what he's doing, and he showed me some pictures at that time, pretty, pretty unimpressive pictures, to be honest, because what they were doing at that time is they were digging a hole for the foundation. And so he showed me what those pictures looked like, and it was back in April, I think that was around Easter time. And then the whole summer's passed. I actually was hanging out with Silas this past Monday, and, uh, and I was saying to him, oh, how's the apartment going? Like, what are you guys doing now? Are you working on the drywall or the finishings? And, uh, and he showed me another picture, and I was so surprised to find they are still working on everything that's beneath ground level, getting their inspections and laying the proper concrete and, and the rebar and uh, inspection after inspection after inspection. And uh, all that to say, I get why the foolish builder decided I think I'm just gonna skip this step. If I look at the picture of the home, it's not gonna look any different whether or not I do the the, the foundation thing. And unless a storm comes, and like when's the last time that a storm came? Like 80, 90 years ago? So unless a storm comes, what's the difference gonna be? I'll take my chances. I'll go for speed and the best bang for my buck. I'll save a lot of time and effort and money if I just build on this flat ground. I, I, I could be done the whole project before he's done laying his foundation. As with all of Jesus' parables, this story isn't really about a lack of concrete and rebar beneath a home. Jesus is using this metaphor to point to the importance of what we build our lives on. What is the foundation of our lives? Like, what are we actually building on? And so if we go back and compare the two builders, but instead of thinking of them building a literal house, a structure, instead think of these people who are building a life, I think there's a lot for us to glean and gather from what Jesus is saying here first thing that I recognize is we are all builders, all of us in this room. And whether you're here today and you're a Christian or you're an atheist or agnostic or you follow some other religion or you follow no religion at all, we are all building a life aimed at our vision of the good life, aimed at our vision of what is good. All people are building a life. But here's something that I came to realize about this specific parable that Jesus is sharing here. This specific parable, Jesus is not contrasting a Christian and a non-Christian. Like, I always read this story and thought, oh, the the wise builder is the one who goes to church on Sundays and listens to Christian music and and does all the good Christian-y things, and the foolish builder is the one who's part of some other religion or, or, or is absorbed by the world or false gods or whatever. But that's not actually it. Jesus isn't contrasting here a Christian and a non-Christian, a follower of Jesus and a follower of of Christopher Hidgens or Joe Rogan or whoever. If you look closer, you see that the, the, the wise builder and the foolish builder are both in close proximity to Jesus' teachings. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. And then jump ahead to verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. This isn't contrasting one person who hears Jesus teaching and one person who doesn't. These are two people who are sitting side by side in church, who are both hearing Jesus' words on the way that leads to life, both listening to his teachings on what it looks like to be a citizen of of his soon incoming kingdom. The difference wasn't in the hearing. It was in what they did with what they heard. Did they actually build their lives on these truths? Like, did his teachings about forgiveness actually change anything for them? Did what he said about caring for the poor and refugee, did 
Did it actually cause them to walk across the cul-de-sac and invite that new family from Afghanistan over for dinner? Did his teachings on prayer make them ever consider carving out time in their day to spend time alone with the Father? Or did they listen to his words and then just kind of file them away as something that's interesting, that's important, that's compelling, but not something that I'm actually gonna do anything with? Here's why this matters. Because Jesus says that a storm is coming. And when that storm comes, your foundation, what you've built your life on will either make you or break you. He says a storm is coming. Notice, he doesn't say if a storm comes. He says when the storm comes. Most scholars, most Bible scholars, they'll agree that what Jesus is saying here about a storm is is sort of twofold. When he talks about storms in this parable, he's referring to both storms that will come in, in, our, in our lives, in our lifetime, as well as storms that will come in the next. He's talking about b- both the hard stuff that we'll walk through, what a lot of theologians have referred to as the hard knocks of life, things like, like cancer or abuse or, or relational breakdown or loss the reality of difficult circumstances that we'll encounter. He's talking about that, but he's also talking about a much greater storm that's to come at the end of our lives, commonly referred to as final judgment. I wanna share a few thoughts on both. First, the storms of this life. There are some dangerous teachings that have permeated the church, especially in the West, essentially saying that if you follow Jesus, if you give your life to him, then everything in your life is gonna go well. You're gonna be super healthy and you're gonna be happy and you're gonna be rich and you'll never go through hardships or, or troubles that you will always prosper in all situations. And that teaching, it sounds really great and it sells a ton of books. The problem with it is that it's not true. It's not biblical. Jesus actually says the opposite of that pretty explicitly. Like in John 16, he tells his disciples, in this life, you will have many troubles. See, going through hard stuff in life is part and parcel with the human condition. It's it's the reality of living amidst the broken world that we find ourselves in. And Jesus is ruthlessly honest about that all throughout the Gospels. Even right here in the parable, Jesus points to the fact that the storms will inevitably come on both the foolish and the wise. Did you catch that? That the storms didn't only come and beat against the foolish man's house. The storms came for both the foolish and the wise. And I feel like maybe that's important to say that Jesus never promises a life without storms. But he does promise that he'll be with us through them. And I've found in my life and even in the lives of those that I walk closely with, that it's oftentimes in the midst of the life's greatest trials and storms that we discover the strength of our foundation. That we actually discover what it is that we've built our lives on. There's... um. There's a family that's part of our church community that experienced some incredible loss this last spring. Pretty close to the due date of their beautiful baby, they found out that, that he had some, some really serious health challenges and, and wasn't gonna be able to live maybe at all or if he did, not for very long. And, and they prayed together. Many of us in this community surrounded this family and prayed for them as well, begged God for a miracle. And eventually the baby was born. And things were looking really hopeful for a while. He was so cute. He was such a special little kid. And he lived longer than than they initially said or thought that he would. But after 27 short days, their beloved baby boy went to be with Jesus. 
And as I sat together in my, my office with this family planning the baby's funeral, an event that no parent should ever have to do for their child, I was so blown away, though, by their strength, by their resilient faith and trusting God amidst essentially hell that they were walking through. I remember they shared these words that struck me in that moment and have stayed with me. They said, I don't know how people go through storms like this in life if they don't have Jesus, if they don't have hope of the resurrection. See, this family, they still grieved. They experienced great sorrow and they're still experiencing sorrow and all the emotions and pain. But they also had this resolve, this unshakable foundation and I've watched it up close. They grieved but they grieved as ones who have great hope, who have hope of resurrection life, who have hope of the age to come where there'll be no more pain and no more sorrow, no more death. And the people in their world kept asking, and I even saw this happen at the funeral. The doctors, the hospital staff, their friends and family were always asking them, how are you so strong amidst what you're walking through? And the only answer that they could give, the only answer they could give is Jesus. They had built their life on this solid foundation and trust in him. Jesus says, when we build our life on the rock, and even though the world may crash in around us, we can have security knowing that even the worst thing that happens to us in life is not the last thing. That even death does not have the final word. For the Christian, the final word is life, eternal life with Jesus. In our text, Jesus points to the incredibly difficult storms that we walk through in life. And he says that when we build our life on the foundation that is him, that things may not go the way that we always thought that they were gonna go, but we will make it through. There's also another storm that Jesus is referring to in the text. And this is, this is an uncomfortable storm. The storm is commonly referred to as final judgment. And we don't talk a lot about heaven and hell on Sunday mornings, but here's the reality there will come a day for each and every one of us. Every human will stand before God and will have to give an account for our lives. After we breathe our last breath on earth, we will stand before God and our whole lives will be right there in front of us. And we're either gonna hear, as Jesus will go on to say later on in Matthew, we're either gonna hear, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter my rest, or we're gonna hear, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. And right here in the conclusion of Jesus' sermon, he says, he says that that moment is coming. He's laying out this pretty intense warning and he seems to be saying that, that we, should, we should build our entire lives with the end in mind, with that reality that we will stand before God. And in that moment, the facades will be gone. The projections of our lives, the masks, the curated social media feeds, there won't be anything for us to hide behind. All of it will be washed away in the storm and the truth will be revealed. Did we build our house? Did we build our life on the rock, or do we build it on the sand? Did we surrender to Jesus as Lord and actually do what he said, or did we just do what seemed right in our own eyes? As we move towards the close, I, 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 wanna, I wanna dial in a little bit more on what it means to build our house on the rock. And so if, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to those last few verses of Matthew chapter seven. It'll also be on the screen, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. These verses come right after Jesus has, has finished preaching. He's reached the conclusion of his message and he shared about the, the rock and the sand and the two houses. And, uh, and, and then I, I imagine as he says those final words, a hush fell over the place. 
And then verse 28 says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He taught as one who had authority. And I think those words are so important for us to hear because as we come to the close of this series and and, and the close of Jesus' sermon, if we're gonna build our house on the rock, so to speak, then we're forced to make a decision. What will we do with the preacher on the mount? What do we make of him? Because if Jesus is just another good teacher, if he's just a guy who walked on the earth 2,000 years ago, had some good ideas of what it means to be human, then, then let's take what he said with a grain of salt. Let's apply his teachings as it's convenient. If we like it, let's work it into the fabric of who we are, but but let's cut out the parts that add too much friction to our society and our culture. And there's lots of people in the world who would approach Jesus' teachings that way. There's lots of fans of Jesus who like certain things that Jesus says about certain issues. Just like there's lots of fans of Buddha or Gandhi, and that's fine. If he's just another good teacher, then pull the quotations that you like and opt out of the rest. But if he really is one who has authority, if he really is Lord of all, if he's he's king, if if he's God in the flesh, well, that changes things. Then we have to make a decision. Will we come under his lordship and obey him, the parts we find easy to make sense of and the parts we don't? Will we surrender to his authority and commit to his vision of of a flourishing life? Or will we go our own way? Because Jesus makes it pretty clear here, if we're gonna follow him, then he expects we're gonna do what he says. See, to build our lives on the rock is to build our lives on the teachings of Jesus, to build our lives on all the stuff that we find throughout the Sermon on the Mount, to begin to embody it, to allow it to seep deep into our bones and change us from the inside out. To build our house on the rock is to build our lives on the Sermon on the Mount. But more than that, it's to build our lives on the preacher on the Mount, on Jesus of Nazareth, the one who would live out these teachings and these ideals perfectly, who who a few short years later would go to the cross, would die a death in our place, would be raised to new life, conquering Satan's sin and death once and for all, and creating a way for us, an imperfect humanity, to be made right with a perfect and holy God. To build our house on the rock is to build our life on the one who doesn't leave us to try to figure out how to live this stuff, but sent his spirit to empower us to really become these kind of kingdom people. See, if we leave this place and we think, okay, I've heard it, I need to build my life on the rock. I'm just gonna grit my teeth and try really hard to be a good Christian, to live out these teachings from Jesus and try really hard not to mess things up, to be this new humanity, we will fail miserably. I promise you. But this is where we circle back to where we started this whole thing months and months ago, to the very first beatitude, Jesus' opening words in this sermon. Because if we're gonna build our life on him, then the first step is to come to him with with, with being poor in spirit, acknowledging our great need, acknowledging that we have nothing to bring to the table. We're empty-handed and desperately in need of him. That even in our best efforts, We fall short, and yet we want to follow him. I know I do. It's from this this place of honesty and vulnerability that we begin to see him transform us into this new humanity. 
He empowers us by his spirit to become a people who look like him, a people with a foundation on the rock. So I want to take a few moments to pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're comfortable, all across this room, let's close our eyes and just create space to listen if the Lord might want to speak or say anything. As I was preparing um, this message, even thinking through the, the gatherings that we'd be having throughout the day today, uh, there's a few groups of people that I felt the Lord really put on my heart. And so I want to pray for a few different groups. Maybe one of them is you. The first group is, is maybe people who are here today. And this is the first time that you have really heard, that you've really understood. Maybe you've, you've heard about Jesus or his teachings before, but this is the first time that you say, no, you know what? I think I do want to build my house on the rock. I do want to follow this Jesus. I want to align my life with his vision for humanity. If that's you, then I want to, right now, I want to pray for you. So you can just receive this prayer. God, I, I, I pray for boldness for this person for these friends that are here that might be deciding in this moment, I wanna follow this Jesus. I wanna build my life on this firm foundation that is Jesus, this preacher on the mount. Scripture tells us that coming to Jesus, that following him starts by, by simply acknowledging Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you're saved. So that's you today. We would love to, to pray with you and help you begin this journey of following Jesus. What if there might be another group of people who are here in this room and you say, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm honest, I think my foundation has been pretty sandy. I, uh, I've heard a lot of what Jesus has to say, a lot of his sermons and teaching, but I haven't put it into practice. I've been filing it away. I think all of us probably fit in that category in some capacity. So right now, I just wanna pray, Spirit of the living God, would you break into our hearts and our lives and would you do what only you can do? Would you stir our hearts for the things of you? Would you continue the transformative work that you began many years ago, but would you continue to do that in our hearts and in our lives? Would you make us like Jesus? You help us to build our lives on the foundation that is Jesus. And then the last people that I, I wanted to pray for this morning is maybe those who are in the middle of a storm. I would say, you know, you know what? I am, I am going through it right now. It's a difficult, difficult time. And so if that's you, no matter what that is, God, I just pray that you would be so present with those who are brokenhearted that whatever they're walking through this morning, God, would you give them the ability to, to stand firm on the truth that you are with them. They encounter your presence, the reality of you being with them in such a real and tangible way. You help us as a church to surround those who are struggling and love them. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.